spend a good part of my day yesterday working on this message, and uh, I'd been thinking about one phrase in particular all through the week. And I was thinking maybe I should just unpack the passage that we, we came to last week and finish off what we had started, but I spent the day on it, and somehow it just felt flat. <laughs> Can't explain that entirely, other than to know it just didn't seem right. And so then towards the end of the day, I'd, I'd finished the notes, I, I have them all here, and um, I knew I had to prepare communion, I apologize for doing it two weeks in a row, there was a bit of miss up on the, on the roster, so that's why that is, but went to a passage I'd been thinking about as I was working on the sermon, which was the one in First Timothy, and started to look at that and sketch out some notes and could see how it would work to direct our hearts to think about the Lord Jesus for communion. And then the Lord woke me up very early this morning. I don't like to get up early as a particular rule, um, but got up early and I thought, oh, I'll just go back to bed for a while. And really felt in my heart, I need to spend some time with the Lord. And I got with my Bible and I spent some time in prayer and in reading. And I went back to First Timothy just to finish up and pull together the notes. And I found as I was working through it, a few times just moved to tears, thinking about the Lord Jesus. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? I think it's worthwhile, and I really feel led by the Spirit of God and in prayer to take that passage from 1 Timothy 3 and focus on that. But what I want to do is I want to use one line, the very last line of chapter 7 of Mark in verse 37, and it talks about last line, second last line in verse 37, it talks about these people from Decapolis and they had seen all the things that Jesus had done and they made a statement and it says in verse 37, they were utterly astonished saying he has done all things well. (laughs) I think there is an old brethren hymn. I I couldn't get any more than one simple line out of it that says, my Jesus has done all things well. I don't know if it's a hymn or not, but it seems to come to mind. It is? Yeah. Not surprised. So what I want to do now is, with that as sort of our title and kind of a catchphrase we're going to refer back to repeatedly as we go through the passage, I want to now take your Bibles and flip over to 1 Timothy and chapter 3. 1 Timothy and chapter 3. Paul is writing to his young associate, who is an elder and a pastor in the church in Ephesus, and he's giving him instructions on how the church should be put together and how it should be led and how it should be governed and how he should serve and worship as a pastor and an elder in that church. And in verse 14 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, we'll read the end of verse 16, it says this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. It's probably better, although it's a little bit awkward in English, to read it as great is the mystery of the godliness, not just godliness without an article. You say, what does that matter? What's the difference? Well, if you go to the book of Ephesians or the book of Acts, and you would see there that all the people in Ephesus are very upset at Paul and Barnabas and all the things they're teaching and preaching about Christ, and they stand up and they say, great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
And it's actually a very similar phrase that Paul is using. Funny thing, he's writing to Ephesian believers under Timothy, and he used the phrase here. And the idea behind the phrase in verse number 16, great is the mystery of the godliness, is simply this. It's great is the mystery of all that is the Christian faith. You know, I tripped over it for a long time. Go, what does he mean when he says, great is the mystery of godliness? He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in, glo- in the world, and taken up in glory. They just don't seem to fit together. It doesn't seem to make sense. Why would he say, great is the mystery of godliness, and then unpack all these neat, punchy, beautiful phrases about the Lord Jesus? And then when you understand, what he's doing is he is explaining the greatness of the whole of the Christian faith. And what he does is, he doesn't talk about churches and structures. He does that in the book. He doesn't talk about churches and buildings and programs and systems. He says, great is the whole Christian faith, and it's all about Jesus. And he brings it all to one point. And just like the people in the capitalists who said, he has done all things well. We can see from this passage that all of the Christian faith is summarized and focused and packed up neatly in one perfect person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do today is I want to take these six statements about him and unpack them. And we'll kind of move between thinking about communion and we'll sort of morph back and forth between a sermon and communion and just kind of weave it together. My, guy, my goal, my desire for all of us as we sit here this morning thinking about these things is our thoughts and our hearts and minds will all be focused on Christ and will come from our hearts, worship for him who is the center of our faith. He is the center of everything. And we want to say as a company of people this morning, he has done all things well. It is all about Jesus. That's the point, all right? So first of all, Paul says he was he who was revealed in the flesh. And one of the things that kind of unpacks for us is, first of all, that the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate glory, always existed from all of eternity past into the present. And now in these last days, he was revealed, he was displayed to us in the flesh, they say, what does that mean? Well, take your Bibles, put your finger in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and flip over to the book of Acts. Acts in chapter 2. This great morning, Pentecost morning, Peter gets up in front of this whole crowd of people to preach a sermon, to explain what's happening. This great rushing wind and all these men out there speaking in different languages to everybody so everybody can hear the gospel message. And he gets up to explain it and he says in verse number 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. He is, in fact, unpacking and expanding Paul's statement that Jesus was revealed in the flesh. He's saying, listen, Jesus of Nazareth attested means displayed, revealed, exposed, it's like watching Dev with little Amalia. He's so proud of his little daughter. He's just showing her off everywhere he goes. And who can blame him? She's a beautiful little girl. 
And it's the same idea that the Father displayed and exposed the Lord Jesus Christ for all of us to see and to see all of who he is. He says he was attested to you by God. And I started thinking about all these different things, the wonders and miracles and signs that Jesus did. And I went back through Mark, just chapter 1 through chapter 7, and you know what I came up with? He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He cleansed lepers. He healed a paralytic. He forgave sin. The greatest scourge on all of human history back to Adam all the way to the very last human who will ever be born is the scourge of sin. And Jesus stood there as the living God and he forgave him of his sin. He healed the withered hand of a man. He calmed a raging storm with three simple words. He cast a legion of demons out of a man. He healed a hemorrhaging woman's blood flow by her touch. He raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He, in five, he fed sorry, 5,000 men, up to 25,000 people with five small loaves and fish. He walked out across the water in the middle of a raging storm. He set foot in a boat, and without a word spoken, the storm stopped. He healed the Canaanite woman's daughter, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you can go through the Gospels and see all the things that God did through Jesus Christ. He was revealed. He was displayed, not just as a man but as the absolutely perfect human, the only one that ever lived. The Bible says he preached the gospel of the kingdom to us and he revealed, he displayed the Father to us. He taught in parables and stories. He was the king in his kingdom among the people of God. And Paul says very simply, he was revealed in the flesh. This one man, unlike any other man, Even Adam, we say they were both two perfect human beings, but Adam was different from Jesus because although Jesus was flesh and blood and he had a mind and a will and a soul just like any other man did, he was also inextricably bound to the person of Christ in his deity. The two of them, if you want to understand Christ a little bit, one very crude way to understand, think of a three-legged race and take a great athlete like Bolt dude over there, you know, the guy that runs the mile in about eight seconds or whatever it is, some crazy thing. And imagine him three-legged racing with me for all people, right? And no matter how hard Bolt tries to run, he can only run so fast because he's kind of tied to me, but I'm tied to him. And so he kind of carries us along. That's one way to understand the dual nature of Christ. So Christ was a perfect human being. He understood humanity. He was, if you like, the example of all of humanity that we look through. You want to know how to live this life? You want to, know how to live as a human? Look to Christ. The, the Bible says that he was revealed in the flesh. Next phrase he uses, he says, he was vindicated in the spirit. And what that means is that all of the things that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus said, if Jesus had died on a cross and gone into a grave and had stayed there, it would have all been as nothing more than a miracle worker or a liar or a lunatic. Either he knew what he was doing as a man, and if he died and stayed there, he was an absolute madman because he was going ahead and doing what he was doing, making the things he was saying, saying the things he was saying, if, if he wasn't God, it was all for nothing. He was a madman. If he knew what he was doing, he was absolutely insane beyond a whole other level. But the fact of the matter, the reality is, when he stepped out of the grave, when he was raised from the dead, the Spirit of God vindicated, he validated every single thing that Jesus did. He said, he's the one. 
Look at him. He's coming out of the tomb. He's coming out of the grave. He's finished. He's risen from the dead. The greatest power that man has ever known outside of the weather is death. Nobody in this world that we know of, like you and me, can escape the scourge and the power of death. But Jesus... When he walked out of the tomb, he was saying, I have conquered the thing that nobody else could ever conquer. I've conquered death. And you know what I said? That I'm coming again to judge the world? It's true. You know how I know it? I was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit of God. I am who I claim to be. And if I am who I'm claimed to be, every single thing I said is serious and valid. It has weight, it has meaning, it has importance. It has a reason why we can trust Jesus is because he was raised from the dead. You see, we in our day, for some reason, the, the swing of Christian emphasis has gone away from the resurrection and it's focused very much on the cross. Now, that's a good thing, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is we've left behind half the story. The other reality is is this, to those new believers in the first century with Paul and the apostles and early churches, the most important thing for them wasn't as much the cross, it was more the resurrection. Because the cross, although that paid our debt, it paid our penalty, the resurrection proved and validated and vindicated every single thing that Jesus did or said. He's coming back. He is the king of kings. He is seated on high. He is alive. It isn't just a great story. The Bible says, and Paul says to Timothy, he was vindicated in the spirit. Now I want you to notice the third thing he says about him in in that uh, same verse. He says he was seen by angels. Now in the Old Testament, the angels are revealed to us in two different forms. You have the cherubim and you have the seraphim. A cherubim are very important because whenever you see God's judgment, you see the cherubim there. Remember back to the days of the Garden of Eden and God kicks them out of the garden and he says, you must not come back in the garden. He doesn't want them to get close to the tree of life. And so he puts two cherubim standing beside the gateway with a flaming sword turning every which way to keep the man and the woman away from the tree of life. Two cherubim speaking of the judgment of God against sin. You walk into the tabernacle, what do you find there in front of you? You find all the different furnishings around the tabernacle. Then right in front of you, woven into this great big veil, hanging across the front of the Holy of Holies, is two cherubim, and their wings touch wall to wingtip, wingtip to wall. And they bar the way. They show that there is judgment of God here. You go in behind the veil, if you're the priest, the high priest, once a year, with blood, with fire, with smoke, you go in behind the veil, and the first thing you would see is this box about the same width, at about two-thirds length of this table in front of us here, and carved and hammered on this box is two golden cherubim. Look at this, and they're up, and they're facing each other, and their wings are spread out across, their wingtips are touching each other, and they guard the way in judgment to the place where the presence of God dwells above the Ark of the Covenant. It speaks of judgment. It also speaks of witness. In the mouths of two witnesses, every word is established. You go to the New Testament, what do you find? You go to the garden tomb, and you walk into the tomb, and you stand beside Mary, and you peek over Mary's shoulder for a second, and you look, and what do you see? You see two cherubim, one standing at the foot and one standing at the head, where Jesus' body was lying. But the neat thing is, they're both sitting down. What does that mean? Judgment's done. It's over. It's all finished. Those cherubim speak of the judgment of God. The Bible says that he was seen by angels. Now, angels attended all different parts of Jesus' life. Remember the very beginning? He's born. 
bunch of shepherds out in the field. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. They're watching the sheep as they come out. And all of a sudden, up in the sky, up in the sky is a great big scene. As if the heavens are kind of split open, the sky breaks apart, and there's all these myriads and myriads and myriads of angels. And all these myriads of angels are up in choirs and banks all across the heavens, and they're saying to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to men. The the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was attended to and ministered and watched over by angels. Jesus grows up in, in Nazareth, and he comes one day walking into Jordan area, and he sees John the Baptist, and he goes down into the water, and John the Baptist baptizes him, and he comes up out of the water, and the Spirit of God descended and, and sits upon Jesus, rests upon him in the form of a dove. And the Bible says immediately the Spirit of God drove him into the wilderness, and there he was for 40 days being tested and tempted by the devil. At the end of that time, the Bible says the angels came and they ministered to Jesus. They were there at his birth. They were there at his temptation. They were also there at his resurrection. And I think when Paul says he was seen by angels, he's making the point to to Timothy and to us that the angels have a vested interest in all that Jesus is doing. But the difference between angels and us is, although we can experience salvation, we can experience forgiveness, we can know the grace of God and the peace of God that he gives to us, angels cannot do that. The angels who stand in God's presence, they hide their faces. They cannot look at God's presence. They put their wings over their face and they cry off underneath their wings without looking at the glory of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. They can't even bring themselves to look upon God's glory and his holiness. And we who once were sinners, we who once were cut off and separate from God have been redeemed and brought near. And we know one thing that they will never know. We know the joy And the peace that forgiveness has. Moving on, he says, he was proclaimed among the nations. It's the next phrase that Paul uses. He's talking now about how the mystery of godliness, how the whole of the Christian faith works. How is it that we grow in the Christian faith? How is the Christian faith communicated across the lands and around the corner? It's through the preaching of the word of God. It's preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you go back to the book of Acts in chapter 2, what are you going to find? That Peter stood up on the Pentecost morning full of the Holy Spirit and he preached Christ to the crowd. All these Jews from all over the world gathered together. You go out for a couple of chapters and what do you find? You find Stephen standing up in the council and what does he do? He preaches Christ to all of those in the council and he dies for his faith. A man, the Bible says, full of the Holy Spirit and good works. Go a bit further forward. What do you find? You find Philip. He goes down to Samaria and the Bible says that he preached the gospel to the Samarians and then God in a moment picked him up and said go over to this other road and meet a man in a chariot coming down and he goes and he walks along this road and this Ethiopian eunuch comes along driving in his chariot and no doubt a servant's driving the reins for him and he's sitting in the back and he's got a book open, a scroll open and he's reading out loud from the book of Isaiah 53 And the Spirit of God says to Stephen, go and join yourself to the chariot and jump up there with him and teach him. And Stephen goes along and and walks alongside and he says, do you understand the words you're reading? And the man says, no, how can I let someone explain them to me? And Stephen gets up into the chariot, not Stephen, Philip, sorry. 
Philip's already de- uh, Stephen's already dead. Philip gets into the chariot with the Ethiopian. And the Bible says that beginning in with that very verse, he explained to him the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way that the gospel is communicated is through preaching. Paul came along. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that Paul preached Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul charges Timothy and every elder pastor who stands with the word of God to open his mouth and preach the word, to preach Christ. That's how the gospel is communicated. That's how godliness happens when Christ is preached and proclaimed to our hearts, our souls, and our minds. I was driving home from school on uh, Friday afternoon, a young man in the car with me, and he was doing a subject in evangelism and discipleship. And I said, how's it going? And he said, yeah, it's going okay. I said, I got my major paper due next week. I've got to have it all done. I said, what are you writing on? He said, I'm writing on the gospel as opposed to uh, social work, good works. And I'm, I tell you, I tried very hard to stay very quiet about the topic because I have a few strong feelings about that. I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and for the first nine seconds, it worked. And so then I said to him, well, I said, you know, how how are you going to work that out? And we started talking, and I said, you know what? We missed the point. The point of the gospel is to proclaim Christ. If you can go out and you can give people a cup of cold water, that's great. You can feed the hungry. You can clothe the poor, but you must preach Christ. I know those good works, those mercy ministries, they're valuable to a point. But if we take and put the preaching of the gospel out of the way and we just do good works, we massively miss the point. And Paul says, listen, the great mystery of the Christian faith is he was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels and he was preached. He was proclaimed among the nations. Listen. Gordon Fee, years ago, he's a, he's a um, professor of hermeneutics and biblical interpretation at the university or the uh, Regent Bible College in Vancouver. He said years ago, the greatest single problem facing the church in our day is biblical illiteracy. We have more tools, more books, more power, more program, more Bible versions, more Bible translations, more texts, more manuscripts, more everything you can possibly imagine. And the single greatest problem facing Christian church is biblical illiteracy. We simply don't know the Bible. And the reality is that what God's method simply is, is preaching of the Christ preaching of the word of God. The subject is Christ. The scope is all nations. The method is a spirit-filled man with an opal Bible declaring the glories of Christ. The method is men, women, mothers, fathers, teaching, preaching, one-on-one, wherever you go, groups or whatever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't mean women preaching in a church, in case you're wondering if that's what I meant. What I meant is there's a context The Bible says in the book of Joel that in the last days when the Spirit's poured out, both young men and young women will preach. And I think the Bible gives us a context for where women have a place teaching other women. The Bible. Why is it that men are given a place in this church? That's God's design for the church, for men to take leadership and preach the Word of God. But women have an opportunity and are encouraged by Scripture to teach other women the truths of the gospel. And we miss the point if we leave that and cut it out. But listen, God's method is proclaiming the word of God to all nations. Fourthly, the fourth thing he says there is he was believed on in the world. 
Christ is glorified, not just when we build great cathedrals. Rick was telling me a little bit about the things he saw when he was in Italy. We're going to see some pictures in a couple of weeks. And he was just a little bit, dis, what's the right word, dismayed, saddened by the Catholic Church and what they've done. They build all kinds of cathedrals and all kinds of edifices to display and glorify these old saints of old. But you know what? They're sadly, greatly lacking and missing It's the truth that it's justification by faith in Christ. Paul says the mystery of the church, the mystery of godliness, is that he is proclaimed in the nations and he is believed. And here's a question for you. As we sit here day after day, week after week, in this church, we open the Bible, we preach it, teach it, to the best of somebody's ability, not the greatest, sometimes. Are we believing what we read? Do we believe the word of God in front of us? Do we believe that Christ is the only answer? Or are we trying to find some way to say he's one of many answers? No. You hear a guy get up and and he's asked publicly, do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? If he starts to say, well, you know, I'm not one to judge, but, you know, I just think that Christ is the way that I've found to God. He has actually denied the gospel in its entirety. But Christ is not one way. He is the only way. The question we have to ask ourselves as we open the scriptures is, do I believe what Jesus Christ has said? Do I believe the word of God in front of me? Do I realize that because Christ is raised from the dead, vindicated by the spirit of God as he was brought out of the tomb, that every single word that he said is for me? It has a weight and a power and an impact in my life. We're too busy doing all the peripheral stuff and worrying about all the structure and bits and pieces of church and all that. The main point is this. Do we believe in Christ? Do we believe the word that is preached amongst all the nations? The last thing he says is this, and we'll wrap it up. He says he was taken up in glory. It's the very same word that's used to describe the crucifixion. He was lifted up on a cross. It's the same word he says, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's the same idea. Having done all things well, as the Bible says, having finished the work that his father had given him to do, having endured the garden temptation and prevailed, having endured the cross, its suffering and its shame, Jesus is taken up in glory. Now, it doesn't mean so much into glory. It means he's taken up in glory. Means what? Means that his elevation, his rising up from the earth was a glorious thing. It was God's final declaration that this is my son. He has done all things well. He was received back into heaven. And I believe with all my heart that the angels began to sing the moment that Jesus began to be lifted off the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and honor and so on, as Revelation 5 talks about. Take your Bibles and flip over to Philippians 2 for a sec. We'll read this really well-known passage. Philippians 2 and verses 5 all the way to verse 11. You know it well, but it's worth reading again. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason, God hath, I love the old King James, God hath highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He who came from the very heights of heaven, he in a sense who put aside the glorious beauty of all of his attributes, he kept every single one of them, but he came down and he humiliated himself and he humbled himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant and he walked this earth as a man. He went all the way to death on a cross and the Bible says that God has taken him and highly exalted him. He's lifted him up above every other name and every other person. And he's given him a name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. We come here this morning and every single time we pick up that little bit of bread and the little cup of juice and we remember the Lord, we're saying, you know what? He has done all things well. He has perfectly given himself that we might be made whole. He has perfectly given himself that we might be washed clean and have a newness of life. He has given himself and God has responded to that greatest sacrifice that has ever been seen by giving him a name that's above every other name, by exalting him in glory and seating him at his right hand. The beautiful thing is that he is seating, he is seated there. He's interceding for us right now. He's praying for you and for me. He's carrying on his work. The angels received him back with that great song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We come today to remember our Savior, the man, Jesus Christ. We come to remember our resurrected Savior, the Son of the living God who walked out of a tomb. We come today to remember our glorious Savior, ascended on high, seated with his Father, the triumphant, ruling, reigning King, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Like the old King James verse that keeps going through my head. What think ye of Christ? What does he mean to you? Is he just a quick pathway out of hell? Is he a quick way to get out of suffering, the judgment and the wrath of God? So you've gotten yourself out of hell, so now you're going to live any which way you please. It does not work like that. What think ye of Christ? Is he a great teacher? He certainly is that. A great healer? Yep, he certainly is that. A miracle worker? Absolutely, you can't deny it. Not one single man in all of recorded human history has ever walked out across an ocean in the middle of the waves and gotten into the boat and the, the storm has just stopped. Nobody can do that but Jesus. Yeah, he's a miracle worker. A rebel leader of people? No, he's not that at all. He's considered that by some people. A guy that rocked the boat everywhere he went. Yes, he certainly did do that. But you know what? Above everything else, he is the risen, glorified son of the living God. He is the one who has done every single thing well. He's the one who has done all those works that we saw. He did in the flesh. He did every single one of them well. I love the fact that they said that. When he healed the man who was deaf and mute. The man didn't walk around going, what? The guy that had the the leprosy didn't go home and start going, "Uh uh-oh, leprosy, let's come back. 
The guy that was paralyzed, he didn't walk home and trip and fall flat in his face because his limbs stopped working. He did it all absolutely perfectly well. I've heard stories. Manny Sukanthi used to tell me a story about an uh, Indian doctor. I think it's in India somewhere. And he, was, he came in, he'd gone to a healing meeting, and he'd gone there with some great big problem. I think it was a, a stomach issue. And he'd come back, and he'd been healed. He was so excited because he'd been healed. And a couple of days later, Manny saw him in the hospital again. He said, what are you doing here? Well, the healing's worn off. <laughs> you know what? Jesus' healing never wore off. And you say, what's the significance? The significance is this. Our salvation was accomplished and wrought perfectly. There will never come a day when you step up to the courts of heaven and go to walk through the pearly gates and Peter will say, just a minute. Um, Well, there was a mistake in the accounting department and you've still got 12 sins to atone for, so out you go. It never happened. He did it all well. He did it perfectly. As we're reading that passage again, 1 Timothy 3. He who was revealed in the spirit was vind- revealed, sorry, in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Thank the Lord, He's still in glory. And you know what? They may criticize our churches, they may criticize our music, they may criticize the way we function, they may criticize our old-fashioned ways. They may criticize a lot of things about us. But you know what, beloved? They can never, ever, ever, ever bring a critical comment against our Savior. He's done everything well. And this morning as you take this little piece of bread off that loaf and we eat it together, remember Jesus. Remember Him revealed in the flesh. Remember Him walking triumphantly out of a tomb, the Spirit of God declaring everything about Him as legitimate, right, perfect, and pure. Remember Him who was seen by angels. Remember Him who is being and is still being preached out throughout this world. Remember Him who is taken up in glory and is still seated there this morning. Take your Bibles. We'll flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll read the passage together, and then we'll remember the Lord. The Bible says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, how? In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Point is this. Coming here this morning to remember the Lord. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, how is your walk with the Lord? How are you doing with that? Are you walking in obedience? Are you walking by faith? 
You're walking in love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said he was believed on in the world. It doesn't just mean we agree that everything he said is right. It means we adjust and alter our lives to live in faith because of what he says. Living in faith in him. Living in obedience to him. I'm going to give you some time in a few minutes to examine your own life and to consider your life before Christ. I want to ask you, how are you living your life? And when you're in that time of examination, is there something between you and the Lord that needs to be put right? An attitude or a word or something you've done or said towards another person, believer or not, that God does not find pleasing. I'm going to call on you so that you can eat and drink with a clear conscience to bring that thing before the living God and plead with him for forgiveness. Set it right. Deal with it before the Lord. If there is something that you have done to somebody that needs to be cleared up, a sin that needs to be confessed and put right, then I would ask you, I would plead with you for the sake of your own walk with the Lord, for the sake of your own testimony, and for the sake of peace. One more, for the sake of the Lord Jesus, I urge you, go and find that person and put it right whatever it is. I'll give you some time just to think it through and and meditate on that and then we'll give thanks in a moment. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Father in heaven, thank you for this little piece of bread that reminds us of Christ. But Father, we thank you so much more for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his body to be broken and battered and bruised that we might have life. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Loving Father, again, we give you thanks for our Savior. Father, we thank you for blood that was shed. Father, we thank you that we have life because he was willing to endure death. And Father, we give thanks this morning that he has indeed done all things well. And Father, it's our desire this morning to say that we love him. We love you, Lord Jesus, for enduring the cross. We love you, Lord Jesus, because you have been raised from the dead. And Father, it's with hearts full of love and joy and peace, peace with you and peace with each other, that we lift up our hearts and our voices to say, worthy indeed is the Lamb who was slain. Father, thank you again for the Lord Jesus. It's his name we give thanks. Amen.